Well, about, it was probably about five years ago, I was over taking a class, it was something like a class at Oregon State, and honestly, it was a beautiful class with windows everywhere and glass and these modern desks, and I felt very out of place. I mean, I drive a van, I've got kids, and so all these kids were kind of hip and cool, and yet the program and what this was about just vel velcroed my kind of wobbling knees to the chairs, to the chair, and, and so the program really was, it was a, a way to connect with international students to be, international, to be uh, conversational partners. And so I'll never forget, because the man who was kind of leading this orientation, he walked in and he said, uh, there's, there's a few rules to this program. There's a few rules to the program. And he said, first and foremost, you must never attempt to convert your conversational partner. And then, just right when he finished that, the classroom erupted in laughter. I'm not making this up. It just erupted in laughter as everyone was like, <laughs> yeah, of course, of course, of course. And then the, the kind of the teacher of this orientation said, well, <laughs> I guess it goes without stating that you shouldn't do that, that that is highly inappropriate. And honestly, that classroom interaction, it's kind of just stuck with me. I'll never forget that moment. Because in a lot of ways, we live in a world where the thought of converting someone to, to your ideas, to your beliefs, to your religion is utterly madness. It's utter madness. We live in a world of utter madness. I mean, just think for a second. We live in a day and age that you can be connected like you could never be connected before. I mean, just pick your social media platform. You can get connected to anyone in the world, and yet we are the most isolated and lonely people, aren't we? We still struggle with that. Or we are, in a lot of ways, arguably, the richest country that has ever lived, and yet we are so utterly poor and destitute and depressed. We, honestly, we, we were told all our lives not to wound each other's self-esteem, and yet we walk on eggshells not wanting to hurt each other, and then we grow up and we struggle with insecurity. We have more information at the touch of a button than the previous generations combined, and yet we have no idea what to do with that information. We live, by any estimation, in a world gone mad. We live in a, a mad world. There's actually a, a song that I've just always loved, and uh, I found out this week that it was actually first written in 1982 by the British band Tears for Fears. I assume probably none of you know that band, but they wrote a song called Mad World. And if you grew up in the 90s, you probably watched the weirdest movie that's ever been made, Donnie Darko. And if you've watched that show, um, watched that movie with the weird bunny that I don't understand, there's a song um, because Gary Jules, he wrote, or he did a cover of that song. And just listening to it, it is the most subversively depressing song ever. I mean, he here's some of the lyrics. And I, don't worry, I'm not gonna sing. That would make it even more depressing. <laughs> and I find it kind of funny. I kinda, fi I find it kind of sad. The dreams of which I'm dying are the best I've ever had. 
I find it hard to tell you, I find it hard to take. When people run in circles, it's a very, very mad world. And then there's the repetition, mad world. The artist was right, even back in 1982. This is a mad, mad world. And now I'm no, if anyone knows me, I'm no doom and gloom. I'm, I'm an internal optimist. The glass is always half full. And one of the reasons particularly about this text that I'm not kind of gloom and doom is that there's nothing novel. There's nothing unique about the world being madness. Madness might have a different haircut or a different outfit, but it's been with us like a pimple on prom night, right? The world is utterly mad. And we see in our text here, the world is completely and utterly mad. So we pick up and Paul is in prison. He's been in prison for two years in Caesarea. And then we kind of get a change of the guard. So not to, you might be confused. Festus is now the new governor, which Felix was the old governor. And now we have Festus come. And he's the new governor, and what's, he's the kind of eternal politician, and so he's like, okay, I better go down to Jerusalem and talk to the high priest because we have this famous celebrity prisoner, Paul, and he doesn't know what to do with him. He doesn't even know what he's really charged with. And so he goes down to Jerusalem, and he starts talking with the Jews there, and he says, what are we going to do? What do you want me to do with Paul? And they say, send him down to us. Send him down to us, and we will try him in the Sanhedrin. And then kind of Luke kind of brackets it, saying, and if, they, if Festus agrees to this, what they're going to do is they're going to jump Paul and kill him on his way down to Jerusalem. So that's the plan. And then kind of like, sort of like the godfather, they say, hey, do it to us as a favor, right? Like, you, you scratch our back, we'll scratch your back. And it's interesting because you'd think that a new politician, a new governor would go, well, this is a no-brainer. Of course I'm going to do this. But for whatever reason, he decides, no, you're, you're going to come up to Caesarea and you're going to charge Paul with whatever you're going to charge him with. And it's going to be up there. And so eventually, Festus and the Jews come down to Caesarea and they charge Paul. And they say, and, and he says, bring your charges against Paul. And this is what Paul says. Paul says this. In response to this kind of make-believe court, these make-believe charges, he says, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Paul is saying, I haven't done anything. I've done Nothing. And then kind of perhaps seeing where all this was going, Festus instantly goes, I should have just had him tried in Jerusalem. And so he says to Paul, hey, why don't, why don't you go down to Jerusalem and be tried there? Thinking, hey, maybe I can get a favor out of this. And Paul knows that this is utter madness. He knows going, what would happen if he goes to Jerusalem. And so he says, I want to go to Rome. I want to go to Rome. I want to stand before Caesar which is really gutsy, which is really gutsy. And Festus, knowing his Roman law, he has to let him go and says, to Caesar you have appealed and to Caesar you shall go. So then fast forward a few days into 
after the trial, and you have King Agrippa and Bernice, and they arrive to meet Festus, probably for the first time, you know, saying, hey, congratulations, you're the new governor, that sort of thing. And Agrippa, if you don't know, he is the grandson of Herod the Great, right? The same Herod that was a tyrant who tried to stamp out the Messianic line, you know, those Christmas stories, it's that Herod. So he's the grandson of that terrible and terrifying man. And then you have Bernice, his sister, which let's just say the two of them were a little bit too close for comfort. That's the kind of people they were. Actually, Bernice (laughs) was so racy. She was so racy that she later, years later, she became the mistress of this emperor Titus back in Rome. And there was such a moral outcry in Rome that they kicked her out. I mean, (laughs) that's like getting kicked off the Jerry Springer show. I mean, how bad would you have to be to get kicked out of Rome? That's Bernice. That's Bernice, all right? And so you've got Agrippa and you've got Bernice and they come down. But the thing is that they're Jewish. And so Festus, he he goes to them and he goes, okay, you gotta help me with this. I don't know what to do. I've got... I've got Paul, he's a prisoner. I have no idea what to do. You're Jewish, help me make sense of this. Can you at least, can we have kind of a tribunal? Can they, can Paul present his case and can you help me think through this whole blasphemy stuff? Can you help me? And the morally reprobate King Agrippa and his sister, they agree to do it. They agree to hear Paul's case, which is madness which is madness. It, it would be like Lance Armstrong. It would be like Lance Armstrong giving a lecture on how to play fair in sports. Or it would be like uh, taking a finance class from Bernie Madoff. Or it would be similar to actually seeing the cast of Game of Thrones giving a lecture on purity or something like that, right? I mean, it's, it's ludicrous, it's madness. You have these two people, King Agrippa and Bernice's sister. They are gonna hear his case and decide if he was right and morally pure and if he has a case. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. The whole thing is madness. And so Festus, he gathers a group of nobility and royals along with Agrippa and, and he presides over this mock trial. And that's when Paul comes in. That's when Paul comes in. And after some introductory remarks from Festus summarizing what's taking place, Agrippa turns to Paul and he says this. You have permission to speak for yourself. You have permission to speak. So what's Paul going to say? Paul begins with some pleasantries, probably because years earlier, when he was slapped by the high priest, he just spoke, and it didn't go well for him, and he had to apologize later. And so he kind of affirms King Agrippa, and then he gives his testimony. That's the first thing out of his mouth is he gives his testimony. He talks about how he was a murderer of Christians and how on a road to Damascus, he was converted. That Jesus himself came to him and blinded him and said, why are you persecuting me? And Paul was forever changed. He was forever changed. And if you've listened to any good testimony, you know how, you really know how electrifying they can be. You know how they can give you goosebumps. 
And so you almost imagine just everyone sitting as they're listening to Paul's testimony thinking, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And then let's, let's pick up in chapter 26 of verse 19 to read what Paul then says after he gives his testimony. He says this in verse 19 of chapter 26. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Good stuff. It's a powerful sermon. Unfortunately, not to everyone. Unfortunately, not to everyone, because Paul could barely finish this kind of powerful sermon when Festus just intercedes and says, this. Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Everything Paul has said up to this point falls on deaf ears when it comes to Festus, and he says, this doesn't make any sense. This is utter madness. It makes no sense. A typical Roman believed in many gods, as you might imagine. But for the most part, it was merely superstitious. Charles Cochran points out, he, has, he wrote a book called Christianity and Classic Culture, and he says that most Romans worship the imperial fortune. That is, they, they worship prominence and success of the empire. And so Festus, being first and foremost a politician, he worshiped power. He was a practical materialist. He worshiped the Roman equivalent of the American dream. Life, power, the pursuit of pleasure by any cost. And then here comes Paul with his talk of the resurrection of the dead. And to Festus, it's utter madness. I mean, Paul's whole argument is, hey, Jesus rose from the dead. That's more or less his slam dunk argument for why he's in jail. He's saying, I'm in jail because I say that Jesus rose from the grave. That's his argument. And Festus goes, that's ludicrous. And not merely because people who are dead don't rise from the grave. That's, that's, a, that's a secondary thing. It wasn't madness because of that. Festus thought it was madness because Paul was willing to actually go to prison for that belief. That isoteric doctrine that he thought, like that just random resurrection business. And he's like, what are you doing? Like, give up this whole resurrection bit. You don't have to be in prison. Why in the world would you be uncomfortable all for the sake of this random doctrine? That's Festus. That's Festus. And it's madness to him. Uh, a few years ago, Sam Harris, which is, he's a notable atheist, and he's written a lot of books, especially about the irrationality of religion. He said this in one of his books. On the subject of religious belief, we relax 
our standards of reasonableness and evidence that we rely on in every other area of our lives. We relax so totally that people believe the most ludicrous propositions and are willing to organize their lives around them. What's he saying? Religion in general and Christianity in particular is utter madness. It's ridiculous. And in every sense, there's festuses in every culture and in every time and in every age. So how's Paul going to respond? How does he respond to the governor saying, you're mad, you're crazy? I love Paul's response. He says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking truth and rational words. And then having silenced Festus, he turns his attention to King Agrippa and he says this, for the king knows about these things and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has been done, has not been done in a corner. In effect, Paul is saying, okay, look, Festus, I'm not insane. I'm not crazy, I'm not mad, and I can prove it. Then he turns his attention to King Agrippa, the Jewish king, and says, you've read your Old Testament. You know the rabbinical debates about the Messiah in the Old Testament. This is not just happening in some corner. These are just natural conversations. You know what's going on here. You know that some people believe this. I'm not crazy. This isn't blasphemy. You see, Festus was offended by the absurdity of Paul's resoluteness to the resurrection. But Paul's argument to Agrippa is much more interesting. And it actually starts a little bit back back in verse 22, in which he gives a biblical theology of the Messiah in the Old Testament. He says this in verse 22, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. And what did the prophets and Moses, which is kind of shorthand for the Old Testament, what did they say would come to pass? What is the Old Testament, what is the prophets and book of Moses, the first five books, what is it all about? What did they say would come to pass? 23 that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to people and to the Gentiles. Now, I've been known, especially by my wife, that I can talk in hyperbole. I love exaggerated talk. I love exaggerated stories. They make a good story. But what I'm about to say, I promise you, is no hyperbolic statement. If you understand what Paul is saying in this text. It unlocks the Bible like nothing else. If you understand what Paul is saying, if you understand what he's stating about the, what the Old Testament is all about, it changes your interpretation. It changes your hermeneutic. It changes the manner in which you engage in the Bible. Because ultimately, this is a book, which is a no-brainer. It's a story. It's a story about God. It's a story about God and creation. It's a story about God and creation and how God would actually redeem that creation. And not merely just redeem that creation, but how he would redeem that creation through his son. And it started way back in Genesis. And the Old Testament, it 
foretells it, hints it. It sets a trajectory in which Christ fulfills its narrative. And Paul was in prison. This is the, the ludicrous thing. Paul was in prison because of a book. He was in prison because of his interpretation of this book. And it wasn't his interpretation that the Old Testament was all about rules or was all about heroes and villains or was all about some morality tale that we need to take, some virtues and vices. I mean, there are heroes and villains in the Old Testament and in the Bible. There are morals, there are rules, but that's not primarily what this is about. Primarily, this is a book about God sending his son to redeem a people. That's, that's what Paul's saying to, Fe, to King Agrippa. So take, for instance, Moses. Have you ever thought about this, Moses? How do you read Moses? The person, the character. Why was he chosen? Why was Moses in particular chosen? Well, if you read the narrative, you find out that Moses is a prince. He's a palace. And what does he do? He leaves it all. He leaves it all to identify with a people. He's misunderstood by rulers, mistreated, and then he leads that new people in an exodus of their salvation. Moses. Moses. Who does that remind you of? Who does that remind you of? Moses, the person, is a foreshadowing of the ultimate son who would leave everything who would identify with a people, who would be mistreated, and then would lead a people in a new exodus, not by the blood smeared over a door, but by his own blood. Moses points to Jesus. Or take Joseph. It's a fun story. I'm sure most of you know the story of Joseph and Potiphar. And so you have Potiphar and Joseph, and Joseph is a slave in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar has a wife. And she was a cougar before that word was even invented. And so she's going to seduce Joseph by whatever means necessary. You know, rugged, handsome Joseph. And so she tries time and time again to no avail. And then eventually she seduces us. Maybe no woman has seduced, and what does Joseph do famously? He runs. He runs away from Potiphar's wife outside. And then what do we do with the narrative? What do we do with the story? We create sermons or Bible studies and we say, this is all about purity. This is all about how to be chaste. This is all about how to be sexually pure. And we create little things like three, three ways to, be sick, to fight off and ward off sexual temptation. But there's a problem. There's a, there's a problem with that reading. And it's that the narrative, that little narrative story, starts with a phrase and says this, and God was with Joseph. And then right after, right after this whole scene when he flees, it says, and God was with Joseph. Same exact phrase in the Hebrew. God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph. When that happens, it's what we call an inclusio. It's, for lack of a better term, it's a literary bookend. It's getting your attention. This is what the whole point of the narrative is about. It's about God being with Joseph. You see, because Joseph was pure, he was sent to prison. Because Joseph was sent to prison, he was in prison with a cupbearer. 
And because he was in prison with that cupbearer, he interpreted his dream. And because he interpreted his dream, the cupbearer left and was at the right hand of Pharaoh himself once again. And because he interpreted that dream, when Pharaoh had his own dream and no one could interpret it, what happened? The cupbearer says, hey, there's a guy in prison named Joseph. You got to ask him. And because there was a cupbearer at Pharaoh's right hand, Joseph's out of prison and he interprets a dream, a dream about famine. And because Joseph interprets that dream, they start making provisions. And because they start making provisions, his own family comes from Canaan down to Egypt. And because his family comes down to Egypt, they survive. They survive starvation. They survive a seven-year famine. And not just the family in particular, but one brother in particular, Judah, the messianic line. Judah is saved. The whole story of Joseph being pure and warding, warring off Potiphar's wife has nothing, has very little to do or even secondarily to do with purity. It has everything to do with the messianic line, that God was with Joseph, that he was sexually pure and therefore the messianic line was saved. That's the whole point of the narrative. Every page in the Old Testament points to Jesus. Some more direct than others, but even a hint of Jesus, even a shadow, even a type, it thrills, doesn't it? And that's what it did for Paul. And he says, Agrippa, the Old Testament, it's all about Jesus, his life, death, burial, and resurrection. That's what it's about. That's what it's pointing to. I mean, Agrippa, don't you read your Old Testament? Aren't you reading Isaiah 53? Don't you see the similarities? That's Paul's knockdown argument. And Paul's got Agrippa right where he wants him. I mean, what's he going to do? What's he going to say? And he adds kind of one last question to kind of make sure that he's backed into a wall. He, Paul says to Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? Which you might think that's just an interesting question, but it's not. It's, a, it's in one sense, it's a trick question. Because if he says no, well, the Jews are going to be extremely mad. Extremely mad. So we can't say no. And if he says yes, then he pretty much legitimized everything that Paul said. So what's King Agrippa going to do? And here's the tragic madness of the moment. This is how Agrippa responds. He says, in a, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? No. Do you want me to be a Christian? Is that what you're saying? You want me to be like you? He couldn't answer the question. So he turns it back on Paul. He says, ah, I know your game. You want me to convert to Christianity. And he's laughing like that classroom was laughing five years ago when I was sitting in that chair. I mean, Agrippa was rich. He could do and say and go wherever he wanted to. And so Paul's message, just like with Festus, it was madness to him. It was pure madness. But Paul doesn't kind of shrink back from the moment. He doesn't, and this is what he says. He says, yes, Agrippa, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for my change. Y yes, I, I would that you converted 
that you would be just like me other than being in prison. We live in a mad, mad world. But I think the question is, who is truly mad? Especially as it relates to this narrative. I mean, Paul's basic logic was this, that Christianity is rooted in God's ancient promises, it's committed to hope, and it's not a public threat to peace for anyone. That's Paul, that's Christianity for him. And Festus and Agrippa say, no, life's about power prestige, wealth. Who's mad? In 1930, the most famous living author was a man named William Somerset Magam. He was an accomplished novelist. He was a great playwright and a short story writer. And in 1965, he turned 91 years old, and he was fabulously wealthy. Royalties were coming pouring in from all over the world, despite the fact that he had not written in a single word in years. His fame seemingly was on the upsurge. He received an average of 300 letters a week. He was experiencing incredible success. But how did Somerset respond to his success? What had it brought him in life? Well, we we gain a picture of it because his nephew actually went to see him right before his death and wrote about it. And his son says this, his son is named Robin. I looked around the drawing room at the immensely valuable furniture and pictures and objects that Willie's success had enabled him to acquire. I remember that the villa itself had the wonderful garden I could see through the windows, a fabulous setting on the edge of the Mediterranean, worth more than 600,000 pounds, 1965. Willie had 11 servants, including a cook, Annette, who was the envy of all the other millionaires on the Riviera. He dined on silver plates, waited on Marius, his butler, and Henry, his footman, but no longer meant anything to him. The following afternoon, I found Willie reclining on a sofa, peering through his spectacles at a Bible which had very large print. He looked horribly wizened, and his face was grim. I've been reading the Bible you gave me, and I've come across this quotation. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? I must tell you, my dear Robin, that the text used to hang opposite my bed when I was a young child. Of course, it's all bunk, but the thought is quite interesting all the same. That evening in the drawing room after dinner, Willie flung himself down on the sofa. Oh, Robin, I am so tired. He gave a gulp and buried his head in his hands. I've made a mistake after mistake. I've made a mess of everything. I tried to comfort him. You're the most famous writer alive. Surely that means something. I wish I'd never written a single word, he answered. It brought me nothing but misery. Everyone who's gotten to know me has ended up hating me. My whole life has been a failure, and now it's too late to change. It's too late. Willie looked up, and his grip tightened on my hands. He was staring towards the floor. His face was contorted with fear, and he was trembling violently. Willie's face was ashen as he stared in horror ahead of him. Suddenly, he began to shriek. Go away. I'm not ready. I'm not dead yet. 
I'm not dead yet. I tell you, his high-pitched, terror-struck voice seemed to echo from wall to wall. I looked around at the room, and it was empty. There's no one there, Willie. And Willie began to gasp hysterically. Here's a man who has everything. Who thought the Christianity was madness, was bunk. But right before the day of reckoning, if that's what we can call it, he found life empty. He found life worthless. And he was terrified. And in one sense, madness came upon him. Contrast that with another man, William Borden. 1913, he's 26 years old, graduate of Yale and then Princeton. And he left his palatial home near Chicago's Lake Shore Drive and gave away, 1913, gave away $500,000 to become a missionary to the East. And he sailed to Egypt. And he wasn't there more than six months when he got cerebral meningitis and died. And everyone, his friends and his family, people said he was mad. But he wasn't. He wasn't mad. And it, you can see that he wasn't mad by his famous saying before his death. It's a saying that should resound in all of our hearts. He said six words. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. Those were some of his final last words. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. We live in a mad world. I mean, two years after this story, Festus mysteriously dies, gone. And then King Agrippa, well, he, he sees to live to see Jerusalem fall, to see the temple destroyed. He loses it all. I mean, yeah, he's still royal and he still kind of oversees some land, but he is, for lack of a better term, he is a king without a kingdom. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? It's a rhetorical question. And the simple answer is nothing. It gains you nothing. That's one of the true thing, the true maddening things about this world. And Paul stands before the governor and the king, and he was called mad. But he wasn't the first, and he surely won't be the last. Because years before, Jesus was ministering, he was healing people, he was teaching and preaching, and a huge crowd came around him, electrifying. Huge crowd comes around him. We read this in Mark 3, and his family come. His own family, flesh and blood come, and this is what we read in chapter 3 of Mark, verse 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they said, his own family, Jesus, he is out of his mind. His own family. As Jesus was healing, as he was preaching, as he was teaching, as he was discipling, as he was calling, his own family said, you're mad, Jesus. We live in a mad world. And I think the maddest thing about this is we call goodness madness. We call beauty madness. It calls God who loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son to save and redeem it. It calls it madness. 
but I preach Christ and him crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and madness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both to Jews and Greeks, this message of Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the madness of God is wiser than men, and the madness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you are noble birth. But God chose what was mad in the world to shame the wise. God chose what was mad in the world to shame the strong. God chose what was mad in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification, redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I take it back. Christianity is madness. It is madness. But it's the madness of poetry. It's the madness of a symphony. It's the madness of a God who loves the world so much. He was so madly in love with people that he covenanted to rescue and redeem and save a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And in that sense, as Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 1, it is madness, but it's the madness of a sunset, not the madness of an insane asylum. God, we are, uh, we are so grateful for your son. We are so grateful that your son lived a perfect life and died and was raised from the grave and we can set our faith and trust and belief in that and therefore we can live in light of that. Lord, may we see you work in our lives and even the mundane small things. We love you, but ultimately, Lord, we're so thankful that you first loved us. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.